You are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today, we will be looking at what is troubling the world and what is the origin of sin. Hello, my radio friends. It's great to be with you again and share another episode in this series of talks. Give me the Bible. I hope you've been enjoying the program so far. These programs are based around the theme, A Message of Hope and Good News for You. The good news so far is the Bible is a book that you can trust. Therefore, you can be sure that what it says is truth. There are many other books in the world. Most of them become outdated or irrelevant, and others offer no hope, no future. But the Bible is different. It lives on and on, just like the one who inspired it. If the majority of people in society lived by the precepts of the Bible, the world would be much better off. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to realise that the world today is a hostile place. Crime, cheating, lying, infidelity, hatred, greed, extremism and disregard for the rights of others are the order of the day. Gone are the days when you can leave the doors of your house unlocked to walk through a park at night is almost an invitation to being raped or mugged. Dishonesty abounds. There are human predators only too happy to take advantage of the vulnerable, such as children, the poor, the weak, the elderly and the unwary. You cannot be certain that you won't become the victim of some terrorist bomb somewhere when it is least expected. Visiting certain countries is a huge risk because of violence and instability there. On top of all that, there is a deterioration of the environment, habitat and species loss, of widespread poverty, food shortages, diseases with outbreaks of new diseases, droughts and other disasters. Things seem to be breaking down and getting out of hand at an alarming rate. Who knows if next week there could be another financial collapse and people's investments and savings become worthless. Although there have been some brave attempts to fix up what's wrong in the world, nothing appears to have made any significant difference. Predictions have been made that with the current rate of population explosion and deterioration of the environment, that there is considerable doubt that the world will be inhabitable 
beyond 2050. That's pretty scary. The world overall is in a state of instability. It's a mess. The Bible tells us in the first chapters of the first book, Genesis, that when God created the world, he saw what he'd made and pronounced it very good. So what does it mean that it was very good? Well, you could say that the air was pure, that there was no pollution, the environment was free of pests and diseases, and life, instead of being a struggle for survival, was pleasant and peaceful. That's certainly the impression I get from the phrase, very good. Evolution teaches that life forms on planet Earth are evolving, that is, getting better and better. If that is the case, most of us seem to have missed the bus somewhere, as what we observe is completely the opposite. The Bible, on the other hand, indicates that the earth is devolving, that is, breaking down, getting worse and worse. But the questions which bother many are, why should that be? Why is there breakdown instead of improvement? Why is there so much corruption, decay, pollution and degradation? Why is it not possible to live at peace? Why is the earth or the world so full of evil? I'm happy to tell you, friends, that the Bible has the answers to these questions. It tells where the trouble all started, what's happening now, and what the future holds. Based on its reliability and trustworthiness, it's my opinion that we would be wise to find out what the Bible has to say. So let's turn to the last book of the Bible, the book named Revelation, or the Revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is thought by some to be too hard to understand, but despite the many symbols and much imagery, it can be understood, and it broadens the picture of the past, the present, and the future. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 to 9, we read, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled into the earth, and his angels with him. Jesus, commenting on this, and recorded in the book of Luke, chapter 10 and verse 18, said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Whoa, whoa, you may be thinking, what do you mean that in heaven where God and the angels live, there was war? Well, that's what it says. But I thought that heaven was a place of perfection, a place of peace a place where there was no evil of any kind. Okay, let's examine this, and using other sections of the Bible, try to piece things together and make sense of it all. 
First, however, a couple of comments. Many people, often including those who attend the majority of Protestant churches, have a very vague understanding of the origins of evil. Many people talk of the devil but don't take him seriously. Still others deny that there is a devil and say that evil is the default mode of human beings. Back to God's book. If we turn to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 14 and verses 12 to 14, this is what we read. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Hmm. Notice the similarity of this and the Revelation passages. Hurled down cast down? It's getting interesting. Now, a third passage, this time from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, verses 11 to 17. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel the prophet, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre, and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says, You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz and emerald, chrysolite, onyx and jasper, sapphire and turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, And I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. We'll have a little break, and then we'll come back straight afterwards. Sorry about that, I picked the wrong piece of music.
Just before the break, I read to you a text or some texts from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. And if you noticed, it was addressed to the king of Tyre. Yet one has to ask, when was the king of Tyre in heaven, only to get evicted? And when was the king of Tyre a cherub? And when was he ever in the Garden of Eden? Here we see an example of a literary device appearing to make a statement to someone when it really applies to someone else. It's a bit like a girl writing to a We Answer Your Questions column in the newspaper, and she says something like this. My friend Rachel is 16, and she's been going with her boyfriend for six months now, and she's become pregnant. The boyfriend says she should have an abortion straight away. What should she do? Jessica. Most wise journalists would understand that Rachel is in fact Jessica herself. She has simply transposed her name. So it is, I believe, with this passage in Ezekiel. It's about the same personality as mentioned in the passage from Revelation and is equally the same personality as mentioned in the passage from Isaiah. Satan, who's also called the devil, and or Lucifer. So let's try to put all these passages into perspective. In heaven, under God's rule of government, where love and respect are the underlying principles, the angels were happy and at peace. One of the most important angels, or cherubs, was called Lucifer, who, strangely enough, began to envy God's position of power and importance. The feelings of envy grew to a point where Lucifer himself desired to be like God, something he could never actually attain, as he was a created being. However, swelled with feelings of his own importance and beauty, he began campaigning amongst the other heavenly beings, something like a political campaign, which we have to endure each time an election is looming. Lucifer's campaign probably followed these lines. Psst, hey, I want to talk to you. You know how you worship God? Do you realise that if you do not worship him, he's likely to destroy you? You'd have no choice. Obey him or you're dead meat. But if you have me as your leader, well, things will be different. So give me your vote and your allegiance. I will look after you. I'm certain that Lucifer, who previously already had the respect of many of the angels, was very persuasive and used every device imaginable to undermine God's good rule of government and set himself up on a pedestal. And so Lucifer, by his subtlety and lies, convinced many angels to give their worship and allegiance to him, to the point where there was open rebellion in heaven. Revelation describes this period of time as war in heaven. War is a conflict between two opposing ideologies, two parties. 
it does not necessarily involve violence. You've heard the expression war of words or cold war. It's a bit like that. I imagine it was something like that, and it was a build-up of tension, making life very uncomfortable. It should be said that Lucifer, also named Satan, desired God's position, not his character. As the text we read from Isaiah indicate, Lucifer had a bad case of eye disease. I will do this, I will do that. I will make myself like the Most High. He was ambitious. He wanted to move to the top by any means possible. He wanted to rule the universe and receive the adoration God had. So what could God do? If he destroyed Lucifer and his group of supporters, that's the other angels, then those remaining angels who had not changed sides would continue to serve God out of fear. They probably think that they too might be destroyed. The Bible says God is love. It's hard for us to understand this, but God, because of what he is, cannot do anything out of any motive other than love. It's not part of his nature. So even in the situation of open rebellion in heaven, God acted out of love. It could be, and would be, no other way. If God left Lucifer and his rebels in heaven, then God's stable and perfect system of government may have been totally undermined by the lies and trickery of Lucifer. And it's simple enough to understand that any government based on deceit lawlessness and selfish personal ambition will not survive. Adolf Hitler and World War II serves as a prime example of that. God had to let all the beings in the universe see what Satan's rule would develop into and then decide for themselves. As far as I'm concerned, there is no question from my observations, to serve Satan is a very poor option. So Satan and the rebel angels were banished from heaven and sought somewhere in the universe to find a home. And unfortunately for the human race, planet Earth was where he and they ended up. The story shifts to Earth, to the Garden of Eden, Fresh from the Creator's hand, it was beautiful, pristine, and innocent. The Bible tells of the parents of the human race, Adam and Eve, and their relationship with God the Creator. It tells how God gave everything for Adam and Eve to enjoy, except for one thing. That was one tree in the middle of this vast garden. God told them that it was the one and only thing they were not to touch or eat the fruit from. Why would a God of love put this restriction on them? Simply this. God does not want our worship of him to be compulsory. He wants us to worship and obey him because we want to. If there was no test, 
nor opportunity to disobey. It would not ever be known if Adam and Eve really loved their Creator. It would not be known why they obeyed Him. You cannot have love where there is no choice. On God's part, love has to provide a choice to return love or not to return love. For example, how do I know my wife loves me unless there is opportunity for her not to love me? I know she loves me because she chooses to. It's the same thing with God. He had to provide a test, a choice. So, into this beautiful and innocent world comes a rebel and his followers. It is Satan and the angels who were evicted from heaven. It is the same Satan who accused God of being a tyrant, a despot, the one who he said required every, every living being in the universe to serve him without question. All Satan is interested in is setting himself up to be worshipped, to be Mr. Big, and to get back at God for being kicked out of heaven. So he decides that with all the power and trickery he possesses, he will mess things up for God and his new creation. The Bible record of what happened is found in Genesis chapter 3 and from verses 1 to 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, or you will die. Ha! You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Here we see where Satan transformed himself as an innocent-looking serpent and spoke words which Eve could understand, then tricked her with deception into disobeying God, in other words, into sinning. Sin is nothing more than going in an opposite direction to the will of God. And what is the penalty for sin? The answer is clear in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Yes, the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened. They now knew evil or sin, something in their innocence they had never experienced before. They also surrendered their allegiance to Satan, who tricked them into it. And they began to die, although their death did not occur straight away. Sin had come into this world. 
And with all this, Satan scored a goal against God. He would go on to score more goals with succeeding generations to the point where every living human being would fall for his deceptions. He, the devil, couldn't care less about what damage he causes and how many lives get ruined. His is a mission of revenge and self-exaltation, to be the master. And so, for thousands of years, this planet has been dominated by this rebel angel, and people's lives and the environment have been wrecked as a result. How sad. We're all affected by it, and we all have to live with it. But I'm happy to share some good news with you. This is not the end of the story. It's not all doom and gloom. There is an upside. Next time, we will look at the solution to the sin problem and how it's possible to escape from the rule of evil that underlies all the bad that exists in the world. So in the meantime, I wish you peace, satisfaction and fulfilment. Thank you for listening and I hope to be with you again next week.